Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao. Uh, today, co-hosting the show, joining me is my friend Sully Meyer, who helps lead our politics, uh, policy, energy, and climate uh, discussions. Sully, would you like to uh, introduce our two very brilliant, fascinating guests today? Sure, yeah, and thank you for having me today, Tiger. Um, so our first guest is Ian Jeffries. He's the president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads, an organization whose members include the major freight railroads of the US, Canada, and Mexico, as well as Amtrak. He was previously senior advisor to the mayor of Lexington in the Department of Transportation, Office of the Inspector General, and the US Government Accountability Office. More recently, he served as a senior policy advisor to the chairman of the US Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, where he shaped policy on railroad regulation and legislation. Ian, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, and then also we have on the show today, Chuck Baker. Um, he joined the American Short Line and Re Regional Railroad Association, uh, for short ASLRRA, still, still a bit of a mouthful, um, that's okay. He joined them as president after a 15 year career in the railroad industry. Before joining the ASLRRA, he was a partner at Chambers, Conlin and Hartwell, where he, uh, in addition to the ASLRA, he represented clients such as the National Railroad Construction and Maintenance Association, the One Rail Coalition, the American Railway Development Association, Norfolk Southern, and Canada National. For the NRC, Mr. Baker also served as its president. Thank you, Chuck, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you can go with a short line association for short. Short line association. Not, you're not, you're not going to make them say American Short Line Railroad Association as many <laughs> times as possible? Right. Well, some people try to say ASLRA, which sounds horrible <laughs> to me. So I'm, I appreciate you not going that way. Uh, so, right. so, oh, it, it took us five minutes to go through the bio section. So this is already uh, <laughs> uh, going great. I was, we were just joking before this. We have two presidents here. So we're kind of uh, in, in our president circle. So maybe uh, I would ask uh, both of you to maybe start the interview with, with a very uh, broad overview of um, what each of your organization does and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll maybe take first stab. And so I think it's important to note that, that Chuck and I, while we represent um, you know, different groups, you know, together we do work in a complementary fashion representing the rail industry writ large in Washington, DC. So um, there are a lot of initiatives that, that Chuck and I's organizations work on. But the, the AAR, Association of American Railroads, represents the, the, the Class One railroads, which are the largest railroads in the US. Uh, there are seven of them right now. Uh, we represent Amtrak. We represent uh, several of the larger short line railroads, which is really Chuck's bread and butter, but we have the, the, the privilege of representing them, some of them as well. And really our purpose is to, to advocate for the policy agendas of, uh, of our members in, in Washington. So that's on the legislative front, the regulatory front, uh, the communications front. We also have a uh, delegated uh, standard setting authority from the federal government. Um, through interchange standards. So um, we, we, uh, we play that role for the industry as well. And so really, uh, we are the voice for the industry in Washington, DC. And Chuck, you want? Yeah, so um, we're, the, we're the smaller railroads, the, um, the, the little brother kind of. Um, the, you know, Ian's group has, uh, there's a couple kind of brand name, huge freight railroads in the country that a lot of people would know. BNSF, Union Pacific, CSX, Norfolk Southern. Not everybody knows that there are actually an additional 600 um, much smaller business 
freight railroads, and that's our group. We collectively call them short lines. Um, without getting into a whole kind of boring history lesson, a lot of short lines actually used to be essentially the unprofitable branch lines of the bigger railroads. And if you go back a generation or two to, you know, when I was in um, elementary school, it, you know, the, the larger class one railroads, uh, they didn't want to abandon that track, but they couldn't make any money running it. It just wasn't profitable enough. It wasn't busy enough. So what they did was they essentially sold some of those lines to local entrepreneurs who thought they could make a go of it. So a piece of track that 40 years ago might have been like the unprofitable branch line of CSX between two small towns in Arkansas that you've never heard of is now the Dardenville and Russell Railroad. And it might only have three or four shippers, but it's a thriving business and it keeps keeps those towns and uh, shippers connected to the freight rail network. So, you know, another analogy might be like, we're kind of like United Express to a United, um, you know, sort of the first and last mile serving smaller towns, but uh, very also like Ian, we're based here in DC. We primarily exist to represent the small railroads in front of Congress and the Federal Railroad Administration and the US DOT. Um, and, and that's what we do. And we're, we're thrilled to do it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't actually know that history about um, the, the short lines getting spun off. Um, are they still mostly like decentralized in terms of ownership or have they been kind of like bought back up? It, that's a fantastic question. Um, it's about half and half. Uh, there are quite a few now holding companies that have bought up, you know, they buy one, they buy two, they buy three, all of a sudden they have 10, 20, 30. They, they still, you know, they're typically not connected to each other. So they still operate very much as like, even if one holding company owns 20 short lines, it looks, you know, they operate like 20 independent short lines, but they centralize legal accounting, government affairs, you know, the website, stuff like that. So there are some sort of efficiencies in having holding companies buy them, but then there are also still hundreds of like true mom and pops where like the president of the railroad is the owner and his wife does the books and his cousin does the track maintenance and his two best friends operate the trains on Tuesday and Friday and the owner operates the train on Saturday and they have an excursion train in the summer and like it's a real small kind of local operation for some of them. It sounds like policy punchline. It's mostly yeah. just run by Tiger's friends. It's, we don't actually have a real operation going on. So, Confederation, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we're not quite as big and sophisticated as Princeton policy punchline. <laughs> <laughs> You're already roasting me uh, 10 minutes into the interview, Chuck. But <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I remember like looking through some of the short lines because honestly, uh, the concept of like short lines was new to me when I started researching. Um, I feel like a lot of people just kind of see railroads and think like, oh, that's where a train goes. Um, but I was looking at them and they have like often mixed use. So they like operate freight lines and passenger lines, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, but kind of like building off of that, um, once again, I feel like a lot of us in like the rest of society Kind of like don't think that much about railroads and their role in like the American economy um, and their role in the growth of America. So can you like give some historical concept for railroads um, and just talk us through some of like the basic stuff that we need to know? Yeah, Ian, you want to start off? Or I, I... Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so you know, I, it, it, I think it is 
it is not an overstatement to say that, you know, railroading grew across the country as America grew. So, you know, how the how the West was built, et cetera, rail played a huge role in that. But, you know, let's let's fast forward, you know, 200 plus years to, to where the railroads are now, because, you know, Sully, you're exactly right that I think most people, you know, they don't really think about rail unless, you know, there's a line running near through their town and uh, you kind of notice it and, and move on with your life. Or they think about, you know, maybe uh, Amtrak in the Northeast Corridor. But, you know, we're, we're kind of a, a quiet industry that quite literally, you know, helps move the economy. Uh, 40% of uh, ton miles move on rail of freight in this country. You know, 25% of our traffic is import-export through either the north-south border or out through the, out through the ports. 75% of finished autos move on rail. Um, you know, we're the primary, uh, re primary uh, uh, vehicle for, for most raw commodities that are used in, in the industrial economy. And what is becoming a more and more and more important part of our industry that I think reflects the everyday lives of America, especially in the past year, is um, all those goods you're ordering from Amazon, all those goods you're getting delivered by, you know, Instacart and, and things along those lines often end up on a rail at some point. Um, intermodal is now the biggest portion of the rail uh, of rail traffic, which is that container traffic. So it can go on truck, it can go by rail and go rail truck rail. Um, it's a consumer traffic. And so the boom in the consumer economy, especially in the past year, uh, building upon prior years, so much of that is moving by rail now. Upwards of, um, you know, I think half of rail traffic now is container traffic. So it's really a reflection of the overall economy. Um, Warren Buffett, who owns Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway owns BNSF Railroad. And, you know, he views rail traffic as a leading economic indicator because as the rail goes, generally, so the broader economy is going. So um, we, we are truly, you know, a measure of the overall health of the economy. I associate myself with all of those remarks, uh, you know, for sure, kind of going back to your original premise, Sully, um, freight rail is a pretty low profile industry. We're generally not in the news and that's generally fine with us. Um, you know, it's not a consumer facing industry. So we're not doing a lot of like consumer facing advertising. It's, you know, it's generally sort of a business to business thing, but, but it's, it's quiet, but it is hugely important to the economy. It's a it's a major competitive advantage to um, to the type of shippers that use rail, right? It's agricultural, manufacturing, energy, heavy industry, you know, timber, pulp, paper, chemicals, um, you know, natural gas, stuff like that. Um, we have the world's, you know, we have the world's premier freight rail system uh, without breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, but we, we, we have a really world, we have the world's best freight rail system and it's a huge competitive advantage to American shippers who use it. And, uh, you know, and a big part of why America has, you know, despite some bumps in the last year, why America has the world's premier economy. So Ian, Chuck, would you mind just, uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm very ignorant when it comes to uh, learning about railroads because it, it seems that I don't interact too much with it. Uh, would you mind just helping us s sketch out sort of the business landscape of, of the railroad industry a bit more? So because I think for airlines, people can imagine there, there are some of the major players, uh, United, Southwest, American Airlines. So in the, in the railroad, what would be kind of the equivalent? What are the commercial facing ones? 
uh, for, for companies you mentioned containers uh, helping deliver Amazon goods uh, what are the consu the consumer facing ones and, and how does all this kind of connect uh, tie back to your organizations and so do they call, call you up and say we think this policy should, should be passed and and uh, are there unions or so just to kind of sketch things out a little bit more okay so um... If you're talking, okay, so, you know, let, let's compare it to the airlines. So the airlines, I think you've got, you know, you've got Delta, United, Continental, um, American. So so the class ones would come to mind as, as to what you think is kind of the, the biggest names. So in the eastern half of the U.S., that's that's Norfolk Southern, that's CSX. Um, in the west, it's Union Pacific, it's BNSF. You've got uh, Kansas City Southern, Canadian National, Canadian Pacific. So those are the seven big guys in the United States. But then, um, you know, that, 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 that starts to, to vein out, as, as Chuck mentioned, um, a lot of his members are the folks that then are the, the more the, the regional railroad. So it is, that's the regional carriers. And that's where you have hundreds of regional carriers that kind of, they all kind of interconnect and feed into each other onto what are those, those main lines for the, for the biggest railroad. So it's, it's definitely a symbiotic relationship. And, um, you know, on the... It, we, we are not what I would say, we're generally not a consumer facing industry, even though we do now move a lot of consumer products, it is definitely more of a B2B industry. So um, the, the, the general public interaction isn't that what you're gonna find in, you know, of course the airlines, cause that's a passenger side of things, um, but it is much more uh, customer uh, shipper to, to carrier relationships. Now where, where, where that changes, of course, is on the passenger rail side of things. Um, you know, Amtrak is kind of the, the, the preeminent passenger rail carrier in the U.S., especially up in the, the Northeast, um, the Northeast corridor in particular, I think between Washington and New York. Uh, at its peak, Amtrak had something like 70% of the air rail market share. So of the people commuting back and forth between Washington and New York, I think, you know, 70% are moving by rail. So that's pretty dominant. Um, as you get out into the country, you know, the, the, the penetration of passenger rail is significantly lower. Um, and we can get into that. That's for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, that's really where the consumer, the customer um, side of rail is, is on that passenger piece through Amtrak and the regionals. Yeah, it, I mean, that's right. You know, there are, uh, you, Tiger, you mentioned in your, or Solly, maybe in your first question to me, there are, you know, a few short lines that have Kind of a consumer facing piece of the business it's really i'd call that kind of like a side sort of fun business there's a few of them that'll run like summer excursion trains you know because like hey i run this freight railroad in a beautiful part of vermont and maybe i can find myself an old passenger rail car and rehabilitate that and sell some tickets and run like a tourist operation on saturdays and sundays but the real business is a freight business um you know that's where all the the money is, frankly, in, in the US rail system. And the kind of stuff that, you know, the, the customers are farms, agricultural co-ops, manufacturers, chemical plants, um, refineries, uh, you know, it's big kind of heavy industry, lumber mills, uh, cardboard producers, the big auto companies, uh, you know, and so that's kind of the folks that are railroads interact with on a daily basis. Um, you know, and a lot of the customers are directly on the rail line. Like if you actually went and walked um, around the track, don't walk on the track, cause that's 
extremely dangerous and trespassing. But if you went and walked around the track and sort of followed it, you'd see little spurs, little side tracks off of the main line going directly to serve a lot of big customers. It would look like big, heavy industry, you know, everything's kind of a big scale. Um, and then there are some other ways to get to railroads. There's a lot of like transload business where um, people can put something in a truck, drive it to a transload facility, then literally take the stuff out of the truck and put it into a rail car. That's called transload. There's also the intermodal piece of the business like Ian already talked about where stuff can go in a container and that container can go seamlessly between a truck and a railroad and those get changed over at like intermodal centers. But in general, you know, there's not a whole lot of on the freight side, there's not really any kind of consumer facing side of the world. Like you can obviously go on a big freight railroad website, but there's no like, you know, if you're looking to send a package to your mom, you're not going to have any interaction with a railroad directly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and to kind of like continue with this kind of global lens for a second. Um, so I'm kind of curious what you see as like railroads main competitors, what their relationship is with the shipping industry, because it seems to me that like, especially in the logistics industry, you have kind of different modes of transportation for different, you know, you obviously like a train can't go over an ocean, a train can't deliver a package to someone's doorstep. Um, and also kind of relating to that, um, like it struck me when I was reading kind of the history of rail transportation that it used to really work in like raw materials and energy, like coal, petroleum, um, plastic pe pebbles. Um, so like, how do you see the, the economy and like it's, what it's carrying changing? I know you mentioned intermodal becoming the biggest source of business. And also what do you see as it's like competitors outside the rail industry? Right, that's a really good question um, that we could probably spend quite a bit of time on, but in, in trying to be semi-succinct here. So, you know, first and foremost, railroads compete against each other like crazy. So, um, you know, um, and that's on the heavy commodity side. So, you know, the competition is fierce in, in, the, in the regional markets that they serve. But, um, you know, I will say, and this is kind of a, one of our, our key lines, is that, you know, the trucking industry, they're our biggest customers. For example, UPS is the biggest customer the rail industry has. So actually what Chuck said about your grandma sending a package, you know, maybe that will end up on a rail if it's not uh, moving overnight. But um, they're also our biggest competitors. Hence that whole growth in the intermodal container traffic side of things. And I can tell you that that competition is is extremely fierce. And railroads have done a really good job over the past several years of really putting a wedge into their level of competition they can provide um, up against a, a, a truck carrier. For example, it used to be not many years ago that for a rail to be truck competitive, it had to be a movement that was over 500 miles. So if I had a container of goods and I was going to move them from point A to point B, and that was about, you know, 375 miles, it just didn't um, pencil out to move it by rail. Rail couldn't compete. Rail's done a really good job of driving that number down. So that, that, that mileage um, tipping point where, where it's kind of a coin toss between moving by rail or truck is continually shrinking. And that's by you know, operational changes railroads have made, investments they've made. Um, and 
continuing to drive that number shorter and shorter only opens up that that business um, um, of um, that more consumer-facing container traffic uh, for for competition between rail and truck that otherwise wasn't there years ago. And you know, you mentioned the 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 type of traffic over time has has evolved, and uh, we'll probably get into some of this. Um, but you know. You're exactly right. So, so railroads have to identify new new lines of business, and intermodal is front and center. You know that is that is one of the main sources of, of future growth and business, and that ability to compete against trucks at shorter levels, uh, shorter mileage uh, intervals, is is key to to growing that side of business. Yeah, the the um, you know the competition with trucks is really what our members, like what my short line members, live and breathe every day. It's not necessarily what I do every day, right? Because I'm in DC and I'm talking about grant programs and taxes and regulatory issues and legal issues and dealing with Congress and FRA and DOT. But if you're an actual short line railroad all day, every day, it's kind of like, how do I get for my existing customers? How do I get 5% more of your market share? How do I get you to choose me versus truck? Or if you're a new customer, how do I get you to locate on my line? How do I get you to start doing transload? How do I get you to start trying intermodal? And, you know, it's, it's super fierce. It, it's, um, you know, it's like roughly a trillion dollar transportation market out there and freight railroads have like 80 billion of it. So there is a huge pot out there that we are like desperately trying to claw and scratch for. And it's hard to get because there's also millions of truckers and they compete really, really strongly for it too. Uh, typically, railroads have a, um, you know, can be pretty, pretty strong on price competition, um, especially for the bulkier goods, the longer it's going, it, it tends to be promising. But on the other hand, our competitors get to operate on a 4 million mile publicly funded network that goes to the front door of every business in the United States. And we operate on like a 150,000 mile network that we mostly privately fund that doesn't go to the front door of every business in the United States. So we have to be typically like cheaper, but we also have to really work on our reliability. We have to work on our customer service. Like people want to know where their stuff is and when it's going to get there. And that's a little easier on truck a lot of times because like you can just, you know, pull up your ways and be like, I'll be there in eight hours and 34 minutes. Whereas like a railroads have a little different kind of network business. Um, so the, the competition is really fierce, but railroads are, you know, it's literally what they do all day, every day is like try to win that competition and get one more load moving on, on rail. Yeah, I, just to, to chime in there, Chuck hit on that, that customer service, that customer visibility piece, you know, society has grown, like, we all want to know exactly where our stuff is in the process. You know, when you order a pizza, you see when the freaking pepperoni is being put on the, the pie. So um <laughs> Our, our members have made huge strides recently and there's there's more to go, but we've made huge strides in, in providing that, that customer visibility into the system. So you can see exactly where your stuff is, estimated time of arrival, and that's really tightened down um, trip plan compliance. So my stuff's arriving when I say it's gonna arrive um, within a very small amount of time. It used to be a pretty broad spectrum uh, of, uh, of time availability when it might arrive. And again, part of being competitive against a just-in-time um, service provider in a just-in-time environment is, is building that capability into, into the rail system. So that's been a real focus. 
Yeah, um, and kind of continuing down this path of um, how the how you guys have been kind of changing and, and adapting to modern demands. Um, obviously, uh, we just experienced a huge change in demand in the form of COVID. Um, and it seems like the railroad industry uh, responded pretty effectively to that. So I just like to like hear how the railroad industry did that um, and like what changes you guys uh, implemented, especially as like trade groups um, and representatives in Congress to enable that. Yeah, that's a that's a great question um, and a, something that I love talking about because I'm I'm really pleased with the way the industry responded. So on on the on the traffic level, you know, almost exactly a year ago, you know, we we kind of entered this uh, entered the pandemic uh, a, a pretty pretty in a pretty stark way, and along with many other industries, you know, railroads saw their traffic drop off pretty dramatically pretty quickly. Um, as I mentioned. 75% of finished autos moved by rail. Well, the auto plants all shut down. So that's, that's cars that aren't moving anymore. But beyond that, you know, goods really stopped moving for a period of time. So we saw about a 30% drop off of business um, pretty quickly. Now, I understand that we're actually fortunate that we only saw a 30% drop off. You know, when you look at the, when you look at the airlines, you saw a 90 plus percent drop off, you know, life could have been a whole lot worse, but we, we took a hit. Um, and I'm really pleased with the response because you know our, our industry is very we're well capitalized, we're well invested, and we were built to kind of ride out really tough times. So when industries were going to Capitol Hill uh, seeking direct funding, uh, bailouts, et cetera, our industry was in a position where it didn't have to do that. You know, we we were able to ride out kind of the rocky several months there. Uh, the one area that we were focused earlier, you asked um, if we were unionized, we have 13 different unions. So we're almost entirely unionized as an industry. One area that we were focused on was, you know, with that significant traffic drop off, unfortunately, we are going to have to furlough people or temporarily lay off folks um, who operate the trains because you don't have business, you don't have trains moving. And so we were very focused on making sure that our employees were eligible for any enhanced unemployment benefits. So an interesting little little uh, quirk about being a railroad employee is that the rail system has a completely different re retirement and unemployment system than the rest of industries in the US. So we don't pay into social security, we pay into rail retirement. Um, the system is much more solvent. It's a much stronger system overall. But what that means, you know, just to get further down into the weeds, what that means is that anytime you're making a legislative change to those types of benefits, you have to specifically do separate language for the rail unemployment, rail retirement. So, you know, and, and that's something a lot of folks on Capitol Hill just don't have a, a readily available understanding of. So when the original CARES Act was moving and moving very quickly, our focus was, okay, we know we're gonna have to lay some folks off, hopefully temporarily, but they should be eligible for any increased unemployment benefits as well. So fortunately, we, we thanks to the good work of um, one, working with our unions in DC, and two, the good work of uh, folks on Capitol Hill, we were able to ensure that any affected employees were able to get enhanced unemployment benefits. So I was, I was pleased about that. So as time went by, um, you know, traffic started to, started to come back a little. I mentioned, you know, the consumer really started driving things through the online side of, uh, uh, of purchasing products, Amazon, et cetera. And so, you know, we saw intermodal really start ticking up, really cranking up. Intermodal is kind of a theme we're talking about today. Ag products 
were strong to start the year and continued to be strong because of the, the, the export of ag um, over to Asia. You know, um, we were able to secure or return to some, uh, some decent terms with, uh, with China on, uh, on exports and, and ag imports um, uh, to China. And so there's a massive demand in China for, for US agriculture. So that, that, that side of business, you know, thrived all year long. Um, the autos brought their plants back. We started moving autos again. And by the end of the year, we were actually doing fairly well as an industry. Intermodal was through the roof, ag was through the roof, other products had started to come back, some of the heavier commodities. Um, and so it really resulted in an end of year where we were off, 2020 was off 2019, but you know it was a few percentage points. And so we feel really good about how we were able to, to ride that out and do it, You know, again, steep drop off in traffic that returned really fast, but able to, to flex operations and bring back that volume of goods at a level of service that kept our customers you know, happy. And that was a testament not only to, to the companies and their operations team, but also to our employees who are out there throughout all of this doing things safely and you know, delivering products for America. So um, again, you can tell I'm excited, I'm proud, um, but the industry stepped up and stepped up in a big way and stepped up in a way that, that because of actions we'd taken over the years allowed us to be ready for, for a challenging time like that. So I've completely dominated that. Chuck, sorry. No, though, I, I totally agree with all that. And, and I, I guess hitting it from a slightly different angle so I don't just constantly repeat Ian. Um, the, one of the things that's really awesome in that story is there was never any story, even from like two days into the pandemic when it was the scariest and the weirdest time, railroads were never the delay in the supply chain, right? There, we operate 24 seven, 365. We had to change to figure out how to do it safely. We had to get employees masks and do some social distancing and change some regulations on where people gather to get crew briefings and stuff like that. But there was never any stories, there were never any stories about hey, the shipper had reams of paper ready to go and the railroad couldn't show up to pick it up. Like we, we operated 24-7, 365. There were some fascinating changes in what we moved, but those were driven by what the shippers were sending and what the end consumers needed, right? So like there were crazy disruptions in like, take like the toilet paper market, right? Like going back to like the April, you know, March and April of 2020 when it was so weird. And there was, you know, there was unnecessary amounts of commercial toilet paper because no commercial buildings needed anymore, but there wasn't enough retail toilet paper. So grocery stores were empty, but railroads were ready to go, right? We were moving everything that people could give us. Um, and there were crazy drops and spikes in materials. There was, you know, frac sand, which, is a big thing, you know, sand people use to um, get natural gas, like fell off the cliff and short line, you know, like short line basically stopped moving that because nobody wanted to move it. But cardboard, which, you know, if you look at your dorm room or my living room, like there's a lot of cardboard being moved every day in the United States. Most of that at some point moves on rail. So we've had huge increases in the amount of cardboard we've moved. So there's been interesting changes in the economy. And if you go, you know, Ian made a point earlier about like railroads are a leading economic indicator, which is true. Railroads are also like a really interesting window into the economy and just like 
understanding what's happening and you could build entire interesting podcasts about like what is rail traffic showing this week and what does that say about what's happening in the economy um so there were some interesting changes but we were we were able to weather them and be there for our customers when they needed and you know that's what uh, again without patting ourselves on the back too much that's what railroads do and i think it was a really really cool thing to be part of in such a kind of a weird and scary time back a year ago Sully, Chuck just gave us our next podcast idea. Just we we we, we got to focus one on, <laughs> on railroads. You can I'll get right on that one for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah uh, I think it is pretty remarkable how well uh, railroads adapted to the demand from the people that it supplies and the industries that it supply. Um, but I kind of want to look at like the flip side of it because I think especially as railroads become more intermodal. Um, their operation became, becomes dependent on other industries as well. So, for instance, um, I remember in a um, in a congressional testimony, um, you talked in about uh, the decreased supply in like disinfectants and masks. Um, and also, I think about the shipping container shortage that we had um, early on December and January. Um, so. I guess, how did the railroad industry uh, respond to that? And also, like, as it becomes a bigger part of what appears to be like a global trade system as opposed to like a domestic trade system, um, how are you guys becoming more flexible and, and changing operations? Good question. So yeah, you're, think, you're, you're full of good questions. I know. It's like you did his homework before we, we sat down. I hope you're, you're studied up, Chuck. Um, I think I was going to say Ian's got some employees who don't even read his congressional testimony. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. If you if 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 Capitol Hill read uh, my statements as much as you may have, uh, we we might be in a better spot with some of our policy goals. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, Got to watch out, S Senator Meyer, in, in twenty years. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is good training. Yes. Um, so. A lot of it boils down to, and again, we're, we may sound like broken records through a lot of the conversation, but there are some consistent themes here. Um, you know, I talk about the well-capitalized nature of the rail industry and the fact that we're almost entirely privately financed. We're not relying on public funding. That's a huge, um, that, that's one of our, our key, key issues and key um, areas of, of highlight for the industry. It's something we're very proud of. So. Year over year over year, we're investing about $25 billion in private capital back into the rail network. And what's the result of that? The result of that is we have a network that's in the best shape it's been in 200 years. Chuck said that the US has the, 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 a freight rail system that's the envy of the rest of the world. And that's, that's not hyperbole, that's not self-serving, that's just straight up fact. You know, we can, we can talk about the passenger rail side again, and there are very specific reasons why a passenger has struggled. But the freight rail system is the best in the world, hands down. So we have, Infrastructure that's in really good shape. We have been able to modernize operating systems that allow for a much more nimble, flexible, just-in-time delivery of goods. And that also allows us to shift operating plans much more quickly than how we could have maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so the ability to, 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 to shift how we operate at a, at a reasonably rapid pace paired with working very closely with our, our customers in what their expectations are. Um, ideally, you know, your, your customer is able to forecast with some level of uh, specificity, you know, their business needs over, you know, the, the next quarter, the next year. Situations like last year, throw that out the window. But 
because you have cl close relationships with the customer, because you have an operating plan that allows for flexibility, um, allows for some you know, nimble changes, because you've been, been investing for 40 years, you know, almost $1 trillion in private capital back into the system, it positions you well to ride out you know, ups and downs, bumps and bruises, whether it's the pandemic, which was a prolonged, extremely challenging situation, whether it's a natural disaster, whether you know, flooding, um, hurricanes, things along those lines to get back up online quickly. And so we're operating from a general position of, I don't want to say strength, but that's the word that came to mind about how we can continue to move and serve our customers. Now you asked about the globalized nature of, of the rail system and how that is changing how we operate. Um, earlier I mentioned, I, I think I'm right with this. I haven't read the report recently, but I think about 25% of all rail traffic, like I said, is, is direct import export. So that's North, South, Canada, and Mexico, two of our largest, biggest trading partners. A lot of that volume is moving by rail back and forth, and it's moving back and forth multiple times. So when you're building a car, it can move back and forth, or components can move back and forth across the border multiple times. A lot of that time it's moved by rail. And then the ports, you mentioned uh, the container shortage out on the West Coast. That's absolutely something we're navigating right now. And that's a result of the massive volumes of goods that are moving in containers. Um, we've been fortunate that we're able to ride that out right now. But yeah, some of the ocean liners are, are facing pretty big challenges, causing backups, um, container shortages. That, that certainly reverberates to us. But again, it's, it's about that ability to kind of ride out the ups and downs um, and continue to serve our customers that allows us to continue to thrive in changing market conditions. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's a complicated world out there, right? And that and the railroads deal with that every day, right? So you're dealing with rail car supply or intermodal container supply and the price of diesel and what the shipper wants to do and what their plans are and what the customer needs and, um, you know, and then weather, and there's lots of complications out there. But at the end of the day, the answer is you stay real close to your customers. You're in a competitive market. So you do everything you can to be responsive to your customers and you move what they need to move when they need to move it. Um, for short lines, that's typically actually kind of easier than for, um, you know, maybe for our, our bigger um, friends because short lines will have like, maybe a 30 mile piece of track with seven customers on it. And so like, there's not necessarily all that many complications and like, hey, you need a switch on Saturday morning instead of Thursday afternoon, like no problem. Um, I, you know, some, I, uh, I feel for our, our class one friends sometimes when like somebody needs to change something up on a class one and they're like, okay, well I have 10,000 customers and a big complicated network to move and I can't go mess up the whole thing for one of you, but they make it work too. And the whole thing, you know, it works, it works pretty well. And it's certainly, if you went out and did a live survey of 10,000 rail customers at any given time, you'd certainly find plenty that are like having some frustration that afternoon. But if you step out and look from 30,000 feet, again, like it is the, it's the best freight rail system in the world. It works pretty well. It moves goods remarkably cheaply and efficiently and reliably. Um, and it's, you know, it's a big competitive advantage for U.S. companies that use it. You know, we had, um, I'm sure you all track this to some extent, something like the worst snowstorm since the mid or late 1800s out in Colorado and Wyoming last week. 
and something along the lines of 600 miles of I-80, which is the main highway artery going across, um, you know, Nebraska, Wyoming, was closed for something like five days. Union Pacific Line runs along that same parallel track, never stopped running the entire time. And, you know, maybe there were some delays in getting customers things exactly when they said they were going to get them. But, you know, five feet of snow can do that. But the fact that they were able to continue running throughout that entire process while one of the major interstates in the U.S. shut down for five days is pretty, pretty demonstrative in my mind of just that ability to, to, to be resilient and operate through what can be pretty challenging situations. It, it's also... Um you can get excited for the 2021 Union Pacific calendar, which will have some awesome pictures of them. Like the, the pictures of the giant 4,600 horsepower locomotives with these huge snow plows that are as like big as a small house on the front of them clearing through five feet of snow. They're some of the best railroad kind of Americana, like feel good about your country pictures you'll ever see. It's cool, it's cool stuff. This is also fascinating. I mean, I'm learning so much. I know Sully want to dive into the policy and politics in a bit, but before that, I want to just squeeze in one very big uh, picture business questions because it sounds like from what you guys are saying, uh, the railroad industry is extremely anti-fragile and resilient. During during COVID, I still remember reading this. Uh, I think a couple of months ago, the, the passenger facing side of the transportation industry, airlines, trains, buses, uh, saw this huge drop. Whereas the freight transportation, trucking, railroads, waterways, uh, pipeline, all, all this stuff uh, remained extremely resilient. And it was, what was really interesting on Wall Street, some people were saying, is that a lot of the value investors were able to, to see that the freights were still doing really well. But a lot of the quant hedge funds couldn't get their minds, uh, uh, I, I guess, adapted to this new situation because they just couldn't imagine that the freights would, would also do well during the transportation case. So I, I guess my, my question would be, what do you still... Uh, see as uh, some of the the places uh, about the real world business or industry that you think uh, investors uh, or, or businesses or, or business leaders or politicians that they don't understand very well about because as, as you mentioned uh, Warren Buffett was you know very big on, on owning BNSF and, and it seems that this is still a very booming industry but to, to people like Sully and me, I mean, or reading Wall Street Journal, you don't feel like it's sort of the new sexy, you know, next innovation. Everybody's talking about biotech or, or all those private equity funds investing in private jet companies. You go, how many private jet companies are there to, to invest in? So, so, you, so I, I really want to get your, your take on sort of the business outlook and, and what you see as what people still don't really understand about this industry. I mean, that, that, I think that's another podcast topic. How many private jet, jet companies do we need? But anyway. Electric private jet companies with right. takeoff and landing. Exactly. There you go. Um, so I think one thing that the general public probably doesn't have an appreciation for is that, again, not to, to be cliche, but, you know, this isn't your grandfather's railroad. You know, it's still steel on steel, and it's always going to be steel on steel, and it's big old honking locomotives pulling, you know, a couple hundred containers or cars full of really heavy stuff efficiently. But today's locomotives are literally supercomputers. So they are, they're one, operating with technology that allow, utilizing significant amount of automated technology. So the railroad is operating with a highly automated system. Two, 
um, they're they're self-diagnosing as they're they're operating. Um, they're you know basically operating with a, a cruise control type situation that that throttles up and down to minimize or optimize fuel usage. Um, we're running over a network of sensors and detectors that are literally reading the health of the, the rail or the train as it goes by or are attached to the locomotive reading the health of the track that it goes over. We're gathering just terabytes of data on a daily basis that allows us to analyze and get into predictive analytics to start to identify trends that could lead to risks on the railroad before they become actual problems that could result in, in an incident. And so I would say today's railroad is one that's driven by data and technology. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm not in the business. Um, and even if I was, I even if I wanted to be, I couldn't be. I, I'm not in the business of telling investors, you know, how to value the railroads and what they should value. And I'm sure the quant hedge fund guys are a hundred <laughs> times smarter than I could ever hope to be. But I would say, you know, in the short line space, th there's actually a fair amount of investor interest. I would agree very much with your premise that it's not exactly a sexy field and it's not making, you know, Wall Street Journal headlines every day. But when shortline companies are um, are up for sale, or when there are class one lines that are available to be spun off, you know, there's a fair amount of interest right now, and we feel like there's a healthy appreciation that this is a business that's it's been around for 200 years, but it's going to be around for 200 more, also, and it's got a great opportunity to continue to move a lot of. I would say a ton of heavy goods, but that's a dumb pun. And we move, of course, millions of tons. Um, but you know, to move a lot of move a lot of heavy goods for a long time, um, and to do it, you know, making making some money. Uh, the short line industry is has plenty of challenges. It's it's track that is sometimes marginal, and it started off marginal. And we occasionally ask for you know some government help with it. Um, you know. Uh, whether it's state or federal for some of the short line piece to help rehabilitate the infrastructure. But in general, th there's plenty of investor interest in, in railroad. And I think people recognize that it's a, it's a strong kind of solid choice and it, it's got an awesome, <laughs> to use a professional term, it's got an awesome private network, which is a, if you want to use an investor term, like there's a pretty good moat around that business, right? Like there's not a lot of people like, building brand new railroads right next to existing railroads. So like, it, you know, it's a, it's a solid, it's a solid business that continues to generate a lot of investor interest. I, I, I just want like the guy who used to be an investment banker, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say Sully and I, so policy pungent is actually secretly a quant hedge fund. We will, <laughs> we will make our investment decision very soon. <laughs> well, in that case, I would go with a SPAC investing in <laughs> private jets. Have you guys considered that? <laughs> Maybe we can. <laughs> that's a that's a, a, a eventful turn. But anyways, I'll let Sully uh, go, go for a serious question. Yeah, I can't wait till they sell the UP uh, calendar as an NFT. That'd be a good time. Yeah, <laughs> Not fungible tokens. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so I kind of want to do a hard pivot for a second. I appreciate it. it's going to be a little abrupt, but I want to make sure we cover this. Um, so especially before the pandemic, the rail industry was pretty dependent on coal for a significant portion of its revenue. Um, in 2018, class one railroads made 14.7 billion transporting coal. 
Um, if that coal were accounted for uh, at, in the industry's carbon footprint, um, it would represent 16.5% of US carbon pollution. Now, obviously you talked about how intermodal is becoming a much bigger business and how the freight railroad is really uh, pivoting towards that sector. Um, but you know, before that was the case, um, especially like in the 2000s and the 90s, um, do you think there are any issues in the AAR's previous approach to climate policy um, and how have climate policies evolved for the AAR and also for the Short Line Association? Good question. So you're absolutely right. You know, coal is, was historically a, a, a very large portion of rail traffic. I think at its peak, it may have been upwards. It was above 30%. It may have been approaching 40% uh, over, over, over the years. That has, that has dropped off pretty dramatically and continues to decrease um, on a year-over-year -year basis. And, um, you know, society and markets have spoken on coal. You know, society is transitioning, the country's transitioning into, you know, dramatically into natural gas, obviously into, into other types of energy as well. I think coal is now something like, I want to say it's now 19 or 15% of uh, source of uh, energy in the U.S. So it's, it's continuing that downward trend. As long as coal is a viable part of the energy solution in this country, rail is the only viable way to move it. It's the safest way to move it. It's the most efficient way to move it. And as an aside, we have a common carrier obligation to move it. So, you know, railroads will continue to move coal. Now, yes, about the climate change side of things. Um, I will tell you, I've been president of the AAR for I'm entering my third year, and I will say, since I've become president, it's become it has been a, a focus of mine to 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 really enable the industry in Washington D.C. to to speak in a clear, coherent voice around climate change. And we actually just put out a, a policy paper um, right around the new year, talking about, quite frankly, how rail can can play a, a near-term role in reducing emissions in this country. Um, when you look at the fact that we move about 40% of uh, ton miles in this country, we account for about 2% of GHGs doing that. Transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the country, according to the federal government. And rail is the most environmentally efficient way to do that today. So simply by shifting traffic onto the rails away from other modes of transportation, namely trucks, Again, our biggest competitor, also our biggest customer, but um, you're, you're, you're gonna have a positive environmental impact when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. Does that mean railroads are just gonna sit back and say, all right, look, we're the solution. You know, our work is done. Of course not, no. We can continue to, to drive down fuel consumption, uh, to drive down emissions on our own end. Um, we, we have pilot programs out there with battery electric locomotives, with hydrogen powered locomotives. So there's a lot more work we can do and we'll continue to do. But the bottom line is, you know, it's important for me, and I'm really proud of our industry for, 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 for coming together as one voice in Washington to, to really reiterate the, the environmental benefits of rail and the fact that we can be a helpful part of addressing emissions in this country. Yeah. I'm not going to hide behind the fact that we can, we, you know, we move coal. That's no secret. We have moved a lot of coal. Um, and we'll continue to move coal as long as it needs to be moved because we're the only real way to move it, so. Right, but we also move, you know, we move wind turbines too, right? Like kind of going back to Ian's common carrier point, railroads move what shippers 
need moved and what consumers want to buy, um, and we have a common carrier obligation to do so, we'd love to spend, you know, we'd love to move more wind turbines. We, we move a fair amount now and we'd like to continue doing more uh, anything that moves in this country, whether it's coal, whether it's wind turbines, whether it's ethanol, whether it's crude oil, whether it's food, chemicals, paper, lumber, whatever, if it's gonna move in the country, it, we're better off environmentally if it moves on rail instead of truck. What moves is not really like, nobody really asks me at the end of the day, like railroads don't get to set energy policy in the country on what moves, but anything that does move, it, it's better off moving on rail versus truck environmentally. Um, in addition to, you know, safety and land use and, um, and things like that. But um, also to Ian's point, even though that's true today, we have no intention of resting on our laurels on that. So there are a ton of things railroads can do to get even better environmentally. And those are some really exciting things. There's, there's some nerdy ones like top of the rail lubrication. There's rail grinding to make it a smoother trip. There's anti-idling technology so that when it, you know, just like your new cars, when you're stopped at a stoplight, you turn the engine off, like trains are learning to do that. There's software that helps optimize the fuel usage. So rather than the conductor trying to feel the train and figure out the best way to power over the hill, like the computer will help do it for you. So you use the perfect optimal amount of fuel. And then there's cool new pilot programs going on. There's hydrogen powered locomotives, there's battery electric locomotives. Um, and so over time, there'll be even cleaner, you know, cleaner locomotives so we can continue to get better. Yeah, and Chuck, I, I just want to ask you a little bit more about this this thing because I, I'm personally fascinated by all the uh, climate debates these days, and I think the public's discourse, the policy discourse, has shifted dramatically uh, over the past few years. So, uh, as your so, how do your organizations sort of make decisions when it comes to this? I imagine you must talk to policymakers, politicians, and and uh, businesses. So, uh, you don't personally, I guess, take a take a stance on say we believe. Uh, climate change is, is real or not, where, where we should do this or that. So do you, do you make certain, certain judgments on, on, on climate policies or energy policies? And uh, have you ever been sort of pressured or, or people nudge you to, to go a certain direction? This is sort of a genuine uh, point of confusion. Well, I'm happy to say without any caveat, yeah. climate change is real. <laughs> I believe in it. It's I not, wasn't trying to, to, to paint you, you know. Yeah. It, it's not up for debate. Um, we, we, you know, it, to the extent anyone asks me the short line position on that, um, there's no kind of question. And I know Ian would say that would stay the same. You know, I mean, look, railroads don't really have a say in like energy policy in the country. And nobody really asks me my opinion on what should be the proper energy mix in the country, but people do ask our opinion and it's our job to weigh in on transportation policy. So we do, we like, you know, again, at the risk of repeating myself and boring you and your listeners, we, we you know, it's, it's a verifiable fact that railroads are the most environmentally friendly way to move freight over land. Uh, so with our big competition being the trucks, we push very hard that anytime there's policies the federal government can look at that help put the finger on the scale one way or the other. And there are dozens of those policies, whether it's truck size and weight laws or crew size laws or grant programs or how the highway trust fund is funded or you know, regulatory issues. There's 
tons of things the government does constantly that is putting their finger on the scale one way or the other. We're trying to make the argument that they should stop putting their finger on the scale away from rail and, and if anything, help tilt it towards rail because we're part of the environmentally friendly solution. Uh, but but do your customers or uh, do they press on you to to make a certain decision? Like maybe the coal industry would say, "You guys help us shift, uh, sh uh, you know, ship this," and and we have a sort of incentive to to remain certain place. So if you want to keep getting our business, right, you will have to to do certain things. So so I think that's a really interesting question that kind of beg that, that that's much more broad than just that that issue. It's you know how do organizations like ours develop the policy stances that we take? And I can tell you that, that, that because you know, you're exactly right, Ian Jeffers isn't deciding what the rail stance is in Washington, DC on a, on a policy matter. So how do we get there? Um, I can tell you one, you know, our industry is actually pretty unique in that we, we, we are able to get to a point where you know, our members and the, the association and more times than not Chuck's organization are speaking from the same page of music, singing from the same page of music, marching to be the same drum with the same policy argument. And that that doesn't come easy. Um, as you can imagine, you know, our members are, you know, they're 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 companies, they're they're running their companies, they're they're um, they're very strong views about certain things. And those views don't always line up with each other. So it's my job and Chuck's job to really drive consensus because we operate on consensus um, in our industry. And so at the end of the day, if we're taking a policy position, everyone has to sign off on that. And it can be a long winding kind of <laughs> ugly road to get there. But I'm, I'm proud to say that we nine and a half times out of 10, we do get there on some really sticky issues. And quite honestly, the fact that we were able to, to come out with an articulated, clear, coherent position on climate change and railroads role um, is evidence of that because that wasn't an easy process and it, none of the issues we're dealing with are easy. Now, some have been around for years and years and years and we know where we are and where we'll always be. And that's, you know, that's, that's pretty simple, but we're dealing with, you know, it, companies and government are, 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 are dealing with a lot of issues that they really haven't tried to grapple with before. So as those new issues come online, it's our job to, to, to push our members to, to get to a place that we think is, is useful um, in the policy discussion um, to, to try to, to achieve our policy goals. And so do outside parties or do customers have views that they think we should uh, adopt naturally? Of course they do. Do they try to flex their muscle? Um, I would be ignorant to say that I'm sure that hasn't, that hasn't happened or that has happened. Um, but at the end of the day, I'll, I'll tell you that we spend a lot of time working with our members to, to get to a place that we feel comfortable defending. Um, and I can speak from, you know, again, I joined the AAR and the very end of 2013, took over as CEO and uh, what, just about two and a half years ago. And so I'm operating on my personal experience, but um, it is, it is, it is a, an art, not a science getting to a policy position. I'll just say that. Yeah, I want to talk more about how you guys form consensus, um, specifically regarding climate change. Um, because I know that in the past, uh, before really your tenure as president, um, the AAR was part of this thing called um, America's Power, uh, which lobbies on behalf of the coal industry. Right. Um, and, you know, they've played some pretty dirty tricks. You know, they've called climate change a hypothesis. Um, they've 
you know, how to subtract subcontractor forge letters to congressmen. Um, but you guys have pulled out of that, and that's like all credit to you. Um, as has some of your constituents, uh, such as, and actually earlier this week, BNSF and Union Pacific pulled out of America's Power as well. I think they pulled out. I think they pulled out last year, actually. Last year, okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, so I know that CSX and Norfolk Southern are still part of that organization. Um, so I'm curious what you guys are doing to kind of build that consensus about mm -hmm. about the reality of climate change and um, maybe about getting them to follow the rest of the industry in pulling out of that organization. So one, so I'll say, you know, again, our, our climate change position, our, our climate change um, paper that we put out is reflective of all of our members. So again, we operate by consensus. So that, that reflects the views of, of all the member railroads. Um, so I, I, I wanna make that clear. Um, two, you know, again, I can't vouch for what an organization that we were affiliated with several years ago may or may not have done. I can't comment on that because I wasn't here, so I don't know. Um, do uh, and our members are going to do what they think is best for them individually. And of course, you know, coal continues to play a viable role in our economy and our energy um, um, uh, equation here in the U.S. And um, so they're they're going to do what they think is best for um, for themselves on that. You know, I think you can, again, I can, I can stand here and say that railroads are uh, incredibly beneficial when it comes to GHGs and in, in, in moving, you know, we are the most environmentally friendly way to move goods. At the same time, I can also look you in the eye and say, and yes, we do move coal and we do move fossil fuels because that's what the market demands and that's what our customers demand. So, um, you know, there is a bit of a, di a dichotomy there, but I can tell you that nobody in this industry is building their future or planning their future around the growth of coal over time. Um, you know, I think, again, markets have spoken, society has spoken, we'll continue to move it as long as it's a viable part of the energy solution. But at the end of the day, you know, that's why we're here talking about ag, talking about intermodal, talking about all these other products, because that is the, that is how rail is going to thrive in the future. Good question, though. Yeah, and I appreciate you guys being, you know, frank and open about it as well. Um, Definitely a good thing to address. Uh, and now I like to your credit, you've really rebranded your organization as you know something of a climate hawk, um, and you're really pressing your 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 benefits in terms of uh, emissions. Um, so I'm curious now in your lobbying operations and in your advocacy operations, um, what policies are you pressing for in Washington, um, and how do you think they uh, influence and benefit the climate? Right. So so first and foremost, and I think. You know, Chuck talked about this a lot. It's um, we operate. We think the more goods that move by rail, you know, the the better we'll be on a, a greenhouse gas emissions um, equation front of things. Especially when you compare it to to our, our competitors in the trucking industry. So first and foremost, let's make sure we're operating on a level playing field. Right now, railroads are operating over a network. They are you know 99% plus fund themselves. Highways received $140 billion in general fund transfers over the past 10 years. The highway trust fund doesn't pay for itself. So our competitors, you know, having a massive public subsidy helping to cover the cost of their infrastructure. One, let's level the playing field. Let's make sure that the users of the highways cover the cost of the highways. Doing that alone will drive more traffic to rail. And can you call me self-serving for that policy? 
Um, probably, but you, I, I, I'm not trying to get a, a, a competitive advantage in the policy field. I'm just trying to level the playing field to make sure we're all paying for what we're using. But when we get into more specifics, you know, I firmly believe that any sort of paradigm that credits emissions levels or emissions intensity in the logistics sector, we're going to benefit from. Now, whether or not you want to say, oh, it's a, it's a cap and trade or it's a price on carbon or this and that, those are all examples that might make sense. You're going to love this answer. At the end of the day, it, it's all about the details of any specific proposal. So I can't say today, you know, we support X, period, because these, you know, the sausage making is, is a complicated process and it all depends on what the details are of any specific proposal. But I can tell you in general that anything that credits our customers for reducing their emissions in transportation, anything that credits lower emissions um, for transportation providers, we feel well positioned for. Yeah, and there, there's a couple other ones out there too that you know are maybe more nibbling around the edges. But there's a program called DERA, the Diesel Emissions Reduction Act, that the EPA has been running for a while that helps um, helps folks who have diesel engines upgrade to cleaner and newer diesels. And there's a whole tier system of diesels, which is probably too nerdy even for a Princeton podcast to get into, but. Um, you know, we, we'd be supportive of a big expansion of the DERA program. Uh, our friends at the Federal Railroad Administration run an R&D program every year that's frankly not all that well funded. I think we'd be supportive of a big increase in funding of that that they might want to use to research hydrogen power locomotives, electric powered locomotives, uh, you know, things like that. Um, there's a truck size and weight fight that's a perennial policy battle in Washington, D.C., we, you would not be surprised to learn, are opposed to them increasing the weight or length of trucks because we think that would shift even more freight off of the railroad and onto highway. So there's quite a few policies out there that we could name today that we're supportive. I think, um, you know, the one Ian mentioned is is arguably the biggest. The having the highway trust fund be more of a user pay system. Uh, that's been a that's been a problem for coming up on 13 years now in DC, where every year we spend billions. Um, I think at this point it's like 15 billion a year more on the highway system than we take in in gas taxes. So it's essentially a general fund subsidy. That's your tax dollars, my tax dollars, a general fund subsidy to build highways, um, which is what our biggest competitor runs on. Um, so not only do we find it competitively challenging, but it's a bad it's a bad deal for the US's climate policy and bad deal for your grandkids. Yanchuk, I, I just wanna talk a little bit more about sort of the zoom out for, for the big picture a little bit because I, I know we don't have too much time left. Uh, I guess one area is, is this idea of innovation. Um, I know so much of the American innovation or creative destruction, uh, you know, used to back in the you know, 19th, 20th century, when people thought about American industries, we, we thought about, you know, the Rockefellers or, you know, these kind of people who, who, who did railroads and sort of the backbone of American industry. These days, when we think about innovations, we think about uh, Silicon Valley, software, technology. So it seems that we've been having a lot of software innovations rather than hardware innovation. So that's kind of one, one trend. The other trend I have been noticing is that it seems that the government, where, where for some reason, we have become much more inefficient when it comes to building things, building roads, building infrastructure, building subways. I still remember, I think one of the stats people constantly cite is that back in the 1900s when New York City decided to build subways, you know, they spent like, I think a billion dollars in 2019 terms and, and, and they built, I think many like 20, 30 stations. 
And, and I think in 2015 or something, when they tried to build Subway again, it took them way more money to build, you know, three stations, things like that. And I, I believe California had this dream of building uh, a new high-speed rail or something that just never sort of came together. So I, I would really love they're, to- They're still trying. They're, they're still trying probably. They, I, I, I think I, reading, I was reading something that they are, their forecast is saying we forecast there will be a delay, which is which is really interesting. But That's awesome. <laughs> um, so, which is a great start to the project. So, I, I guess from your insider perspective, I, I guess how do you see sort of the trend of, of innovations in infrastructure? That, that's sort of on one end, but also on the other end, what are the sort of the sociological or political factors that are kind of preventing us from from you know having America as the as the leading nation in these kind of infrastructure innovations again? That is a hugely relevant question. Third podcast. We, this is the third podcast idea we're coming up with. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's an area we could literally spend all weekend talking about, but we'll, we'll try to spare you of that because I'm sure you have better things to do with your time. Um, <laughs> Basketball tournament. Yeah, no, no, exactly. no, no. We're, we're, we have other uh, companies to do due diligence on. We have yeah, exactly. a quantity fund. So. <laughs> so, you know, I think an overarching theme here is on the innovation side is we have a especially on the federal side, we have a federal legislators and regulators have absolutely no capacity to keep up with the evolution of innovation in this country. And that's not a rail issue. I mean, that's a economy issue. And, you know, the joke was something like, you know, the, how many times is the word internet in the federal statute until recently it was virtually none and you know internet was not in um in the terms of nafta and you know just it just like our our, our system is so slow to adapt to what's going on in society that by the time the legislative system catches up or the regulatory system catches up the the, the industry has moved you know six steps down the road so how do we develop a regulatory structure that encourages and incentivizes innovation across the board, especially for more heavily regulated industries? And to me, you know, the, the kind of the macro level way to do that is talk about, you know, outcomes-based regulation. Tell me the goal you want to hit and let me identify the best way to do that. And as long as I'm continual, con making continual progress towards hitting those goals, you know, I should be able to figure out the best way to do that versus you writing into a reg, here's the way you have to do that. And then that's stuck in the regulation for the next 40 years. Um, on the flip side, as far as building things and how do we get back to being a building country? You know, it's darn near impossible to get things permitted in this country to build. And there's a variety of reasons. There's good reasons, there's less good reasons. Um, but especially mega projects, big, um, big infrastructure projects, and you know, there's no easy answer to that, quite honestly. Um, there, there, there are there are pushes to do things as simple as just setting shot clocks on how long reviews can take and what the period statute of limitations are for 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 litigation, um, concurrent agency review, stuff like that. But you know, that's as much of a state or a local issue as it is a federal issue. And there, there's got to be a better path forward. I don't know what that path is. Um, you know, it's something our industry continues to wrap its head around, especially given that we're not using public dollars most of the time. These are private projects, often replacing or upgrading existing infrastructure. Um, but how do you how do you move those timelines along? Because you know, part of those massive cost increases you're talking about are due to massive time delays in getting things done. So how do you move the process along without usurping what are very legitimate environmental reviews and safety reviews and things along those lines. And 
I don't have the answer to that. I can just tell you it's something that we all should be trying to wrap our heads around and maybe like forward leaning big thinking guys like yourselves will be able to come up with, you know, the path forward on some of this stuff. Um, Chuck, what am I missing? No, I mean, I, I guess I'd make two other points. You know, one is the country is still incredibly innovative. I would agree very much that it's, you know, it's been more on like the software side than the hardware side recently, but those things are increasingly integrated. And, you know, Ian made this case um, like 45 minutes ago, probably. But if you look at a freight railroad, it probably looks from the outside a lot like it looked a hundred years ago. But if you look under the hood, it is, it is certainly not your grandfather's railroad. And all those Silicon Valley software computer innovations get integrated into hardware businesses like ours. So, you know, the, the, the ability for our companies to use big data and predictive analytics and anti-idling technology and software. Oh my God, the buzzwords, Chuck, yeah, the buzzwords, yeah. machine well, learning, artificial intelligence. He, he's got a, he has a note card with buzzwords in front of him that we're both working <laughs> off of. I, between like Vox and Axios and the Atlantic, I'm just like, it's just in my head. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so so those things do get integrated. And I would if you went and looked at like American, like heavy manufacturing or heavy industry, though, you know, it's remarkable, huge productive gains, productivity gains over the years, which I think a lot of it get, gives credit to the folks out in Silicon Valley and Austin and places like that. So, you know, that's one. And then the other point on, you know, how do we why does it cost so damn much to build things in the country is. I say this kind of at the risk of, at the risk of um, being a traitor to my own like believe in government and big government roots. But um, it works better the more privatized it can be. Um, it doesn't, you know, the inflation cost of what it costs a freight railroad to build things now versus a hundred years ago is nowhere near the inflation cost in what it costs. New York City Transit to build things now versus 100 years ago. And I, I think that has a lot to do with the privatized nature of the business. And I know that there's that's a kind of a controversial way to frame it. And there's probably folks in government and plenty of labor unions, um, friends of mine who would disagree with that take. But um, you know, the permitting is a huge problem, like Ian pointed out. But there's also, if the building is in the hands of people who have a profit-driven incentive to be quick and efficient about it, um, it, it tends to work better in my experience. Yeah, I find this such an interesting tension in like the history of railroads as I was unpacking it. Cause I feel like, especially like early on in development, there was a lot of like government assistance going on, especially in terms of like leasing land and loaning land and stuff like that. Um, but then also like the big pivot in railroad history is like the Staggers Act, where everything got super deregulated and that really allowed the railroad industry to grow. Um, and I think- I, I think we say partially deregulated. I don't think we partially. say super deregulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Good yeah. Good catch. For sure. Um, I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> but then I also think about like how the sentiment in Washington right now is clearly about like, if we invest now, it saves us money later. Um, let's improve people's lives now and not worry so much about the deficit. And there's a huge amount of public investment, especially with an infrastructure bill coming up in the summer. Um, so I'm just kind of curious about like whether, especially in regards to like passenger uh, rail, where 
government investment is more important, um, I assume. Uh, you can have a different perspective on that, obviously. Um, just like, what do you see as like the role of public investment in the future of railroads? Uh, so, so I'll take a shot and then I think Chuck has a unique perspective from, from the short line industry as well. So, you know, you hit on the passenger side. There could be, there could not be a more stark difference between the financing of the, the freight railroads and passenger railroads in this country. You know, passenger needs public investment. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, the, the, it's catchy to, to complain about the decrepit passenger rail system in this country compared to Europe and compared to, to China and Japan. Well, the reason that we have a system that is not on par is because the public has not chosen to make the investments necessary to do that. You know, just on the Northeast Corridor, we have a $50 billion investment backlog just to bring the corridor up to kind of today's state of good repair. Never mind the fact going where we should go to make it a truly you know, transformative experience. So I think just not too many years ago, since Amtrak formed in 1971, I think Amtrak had received something like a total of $40 billion in federal government assistance. That is compared to, you know, an annual $50 billion that our highways get. So, I mean, society made the decision long ago that we're going to fund highways, we're not going to fund passenger rail. So in order to bring passenger rail forward, we really need to rethink, you know, whether or not it is, it is something that society should be investing in. You know, I'll give Amtrak credit. They've made remarkable strides forward on what has been a shoestring public investment. It's pretty impressive. And they continue to, to do a better job every day. And they do benefit from, you know, in the longer distance routes operating on privately owned freight rail. So they get the benefits of that infrastructure. Um, and so there's absolutely a, a role and AAR advocates for this. There's a role for federal investment into passenger rail. There's a big role for federal investment into, you know, interconnectors, modal connectors, whether it's, you know, port to rail projects or highway to rail projects or, you know, those, those first mile, last mile type projects where there isn't a clean fit um, for public or private. Public-private partnerships, another, another need for a public role there, obviously, hence the name. Um, on, the, on, the, on the private side, you know, you hit a few things and one of the the biggest contributions that government, federal government has made is the Staggers Act, period. Um, by allowing railroads to get out of what was a, a very centrally planned model where the government was telling them the prices they could charge, the routes they had to maintain, et cetera, um, and allowing them to act like private industry to, to charge market rates, which resulted in dramatic drops in rates, um, to rationalize their systems, which basically created the short line rail network, um, it really allowed rail to thrive overall. So it's kind of unleashing the ability of rail. So those are, those are kind of two points related to that. Um, Chuck, I, I have no doubt you have a, something you want to hit on because I have something that I would hit on. So, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, for sure, stag, right. The question was sort of multiple parts. So I guess just picking and choosing my favorite parts to answer, but staggers for sure is the, you know, kind of the signature legislative or regulatory development in our field in the last you know, 100 years. And I think almost, I'm sure you could find somebody who would disagree with anything, but I, I would say it's it's pretty broadly acknowledged as a huge win and that the freight railroad industry has really thrived, you know, since the partial deregulation of staggers. And for sure, it essentially created the industry that I run. It allowed 
class ones who had money losing lines who before staggers would have essentially just had to abandon those. And that's like a multi-year process that results in a, it's just a lose-lose for everybody. Instead, it allowed those to spin those spin them off, you know, relatively quickly to local entrepreneurs who could make a go of it. And, you know, 41 years later, run a thriving kind of small business. So Staggers, you know, Staggers has worked pretty well. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, much broader question is, again, maybe like your fourth podcast spinoff that we could talk about today. But like, what's the role for government investment in the economy? Um, I, you know, there's a lot, there is a huge history in America of government investment really being transformative and incredibly successful, right? Whether it's, you know, the basic science industry, like government funding kind of was the foundation for the internet or the highway system or the nuclear industry. Although, you know, you could obviously, you know, question whether any of that was a good idea in the first place, but there, there's tons of government, um, success, you know, successful stories about government investment. And, and there is a very big picture story that over the last couple of decades, we've gotten away from that. And more and more of the government budget goes to, you know, entitlements, um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, things like that. And, you know, um, that in the military is the vast majority of the federal budget at this point. And, you know, that's well above my pay grade. And I obviously have no, like, I'm not here to pick a fight with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which are uh, incredibly popular and incredibly important to tens of millions of people. But I think there's a real argument that the government has unfortunately gotten out of the business of like heavy investment and R&D investment and basic science investment. And we really risk as a country losing our preeminent place in the world because of that. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a real problem, but of course we also have a, you know, a deficit that we're already spending a north of a trillion dollars more a year than we take in. So there are some real structural challenges with what the government can and can't do going forward. And, you know, again, when, when you guys are senators, Meyer and Gao, I hope you guys can figure that out because those are some really, really hard questions. <laughs> Did the president of the Shoreline Association just declare a war on the United States government? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what just happened there. Um, let uh, let yeah, the record go. That was Chuck, not Ian. Yeah, I know you have to leave in like two minutes. Yeah. So, so uh, I know we started too many exciting topics here. It was so fascinating. It, well, we'll need to have you guys back some other time. And and Sully was. We got, we, maybe we can, we've got to start a podcast, you know, <laughs> just talking about these things. But, but in, the, in the tradition of uh, policy punchline, I just have one last question uh, for both of you, which is what is your punchline? We always ask our guests, uh, final word, what, what would your punchline be for today's interview? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use a punchline, but it's from Ian's climate report. So you can, you can <laughs> sue me for it if you, if you don't want, if you don't like stealing it. But I, I'll say this any ton of freight that you can move, that we can move as a society by rail instead of by highway is a 75% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions today. So that's not way off in the future. That doesn't require a transformation of the system and a trillion dollars investment and some new infrastructure that nobody has. That's today. And there are a lot of policies and we've hit on a few of them that the government is in charge of today 
that are constantly putting their finger on the scale one way or the other uh, towards rail or away from rail. So we are really, really excited to work with our regulators and our legislators on, on tweaking those policies to get even more freight moved by rail. And that's, that's a little self-serving, but also I think a really big win for the country and our kids and our kids' kids. And so, you know, I feel like we're doing the work for the good guys. And um, after I watch basketball all weekend, I'm excited to get back to doing that on Monday. <laughs> um, I would jump in there. Just um, you, you took part of my punchline, but I'll, I'll broaden it out a little bit, Chuck. Um, so I had the opportunity to sit down with, with new Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, and he, he laid out kind of what his five biggest priorities are. And, you know, at a, at a high level, they really dovetail with what a lot of our priorities are. So Chuck hit on the climate piece, obviously, but infrastructure investment, you know, the railroads are investing billions of their own every, every day back into the, every week, back into the network. We always joke that every week's infrastructure week, the term infrastructure week is kind of a running joke in DC. Um, but, um, you know, and we're, and we're doing it safely. So maximizing safety, investing in infrastructure, environmental sustainability, you know, those are shared goals. And those are things that, that rails stand for and can, can contribute a lot to. So, um, you know, that's my punchline. I don't know how funny it was, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be going. funny. Okay, good. Now, uh, Iger's in charge of the stand-up comedy. <laughs> I was just saying, Sully and I, we need to, next time we go to DC to, to go find you guys, we'll take a fright. fright. We, we won't take the Amtrak anymore. Maybe we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll hop on <laughs> some other. Uh, but no, thank you guys so much for, for talking to us today. This is just such a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks no, so much. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally my pleasure. I'm really impressed by what you guys do. I, I think we were joking before we started about what I was doing when I was 21 and it was not running a 40 person podcast operation talking to trade association leaders. <laughs> uh, I, I, think it, I think it's cool. Um, good for you guys. I feel good about the future. Hey, hey, Chuck, just to clue you in, if you've looked at their past guests, they're kind of slumming it today with us. So we, should, we really should be thanking them for having us on. <laughs> First of all, that, that, is, that is absolutely not true. But by the way, you, uh, you were just talking about public investment. Uh, a quick plug, we, we're releasing this episode. I mean, it will, it will be released before, by the time this episode gets released, but it's with the, uh, Simon Johnson, who wrote, who wrote this book, Jumpstarting America. He was the former chief economist for, for uh, IMF. And he's a professor at MIT right now. So, so it's a great book advocating exactly, Chuck, what you were saying. So we're all on the, on the same page here. So it's great. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, no, guys. Th thank you so much for, for joining us, guys. And, and hopefully we can uh, stay in touch and um, uh, you know, do, do another one of those again or, or in D.C. I'll be back in D.C. Uh, very soon uh, in, in a good. couple of months. Yeah, Any absolutely. Well, that was our interview with Ian Jeffries and Chuck Baker. Ian was the president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads, and Chuck uh, joined the American Short Line and Railroad, Regional Railroad Association as president uh, just a couple of years ago. So it was such a fascinating conversation for both of them. Thank you so much, obviously, for listening and for following us. Uh, by the way, Sally, do you have any thoughts on our, the interviews we just did? <laughs> Yeah, it was a great time to kind of like take a step back into an America that made big things and got big things done. I, I like that. Um, and a great discussion about public investment at the end. So yeah, thank you for having me, Tiger. No, it, it was so fascinating. We talked about public investment. We, we started talking about the business models of the industry. I mean, uh, Chuck was joking about how we, we can literally start four or five podcasts separate podcasts, not just interviews, probably long series of podcasts uh, dedicated to these topics. And those are great topics that we should 
definitely keep continuing interviewing people about. So, so hopefully we can do more of those. Yeah, reach out to me when you uh, get around to that. Yes, sure. absolutely. But uh, anyways, thank you guys so much for, for watching and listening today. You can find this uh, full interview on YouTube uh, or on policypunchline.com. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, any of your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.